This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. Today, I have a special guest on the Equip Podcast with me. The guest for today is Dr. Corey Patton. Dr. Patton is a longtime member of Cornerstone Church. She is also head of uh, pediatrics at McFarland Clinic in Ames, and actually my kid's doctor. And so recently we had Corey on a town hall here at Cornerstone Church talking about some wisdom in regard to the coronavirus. And so what we did is clipped apart that town hall meeting that we had, and we're gonna share that with you today. I think Corey has some incredible wisdom. She's a trusted advisor, and she's someone who I know loves Ames and loves Cornerstone. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think there's a lot of wisdom as we try to navigate these uncertain times and be faithful that Corey shares with us. So listen closely. I want to start with why is this even a big deal? And so the reason I ask that is because I think a lot of us here, like the death rate is lower than what we thought and it's just really a cold. So why are we freaking out about a virus when we are humans who live with viruses a lot? So why is this a big deal right now? Yeah, so we are. We're humans who live with a lot of viruses even this summer. Coronavirus is not the only virus we see when kids are coming in sick right now. Um, But this one is called the novel coronavirus because it's new. We have not seen this virus before. um, And it is infecting people. We're finding it is spread easily between people. And while for some people it's not a big deal, actually maybe up to... I don't know, maybe up to 40% don't even have symptoms if they get the virus. The problem is there are some people who have a lot of difficulty with the virus. So it's making some people very sick. And especially early on, um, traditional things we try to do to help people when they're very sick weren't helping people. So people were dying um, when we were surprised by that. Um, So... As time goes on, you're right, we get we have more time to study the virus and understand it a little bit more. We have more time to look at treatments for this new virus. Um, it still continues to be a dangerous virus. It, it still causes more people to die than the seasonal flu, um, but not as many people are dying as we originally thought. So mm. still a big deal, but we're learning more. So, Corey, let's press into that a little bit. So when we kind of compared it there to like the death rate on a seasonal flu, so you you highlighted the novelty of it is one big thing that makes this different. So when you say novelty, compare that to like what we know about an influenza virus or something like that. What makes it easier for you to say, okay, I know that flu and I know what to do versus a coronavirus? Well, um the influenza virus has been around a long time, but it changes a little every year. So, you know, um, about 10 years ago, there was a bad strain of, influ- of influenza, an H1N1 strain that was had a higher mortality rate. Um, so even a virus that we know can change a little, but 
this one, um, it's still in a class of viruses that we know something about, but it's kind of behaving differently. So um, I, I can't get into a ton of details on that, but influenza has been around. We study it. We track it year after year. You can find all kinds of data on the influenza virus. Um, we have some medicines we can use, like Tamiflu you can take early on to prevent it. Um, it still causes things like pneumonia. Um, but some of our traditional medicines, we know how to treat with that. So we just know less with coronavirus still. Do you, it, how, compare it to how infectious some of those things are, like the flu or something like that. What's this look like and how it transmits to other people? So actually influenza and coronavirus are similar in that they're both spread in respiratory droplets. Um, so I can cough and sneeze on you and then you can get um, in both cases. Um, it, it might be true that the droplets that can carry the virus with coronavirus can be even smaller droplets and spread even further. We don't have I would say we don't have great information on that yet, and there's some debate in the scientific community about that. Um, if it can be aerosolized is the word that we're talking about there, or if it's only in bigger droplets, how long do those droplets hang in the air? So on the one hand, we would say they're spread in a similar fashion. On the other hand, we're saying, but maybe the coronavirus spreads even better than the influenza virus. Another difference is the period of time between getting the virus and having symptoms it can be longer with coronavirus. And during that period, you can still spread it to somebody else. So you're more likely to know you're sick with influenza and stay home and then not be mm -hmm. around other people. Mm -hmm. With coronavirus, you're more likely to have the virus yourself and just be going about your daily life spreading it. Okay. So I, I want to get into a question on that one because this is the second set of questions. They're about masks. So you mentioned aerosolizer droplets. And so I'm a very simple person in the way I think about this. And so I say, that's like spit. So I want to catch the spit with the spit catcher known as a facial covering. Um, why are these important? Because it did seem oddly enough, I felt like this one would not be like a conflictual point of conversation, but it did seem like even wearing a mask seemed like something where people are like, oh, it's not useful. It's not helpful. Is this helpful? Why is it helpful? What would you recommend from a, just a physician's point of view? Um, yes, the mask is helpful. Um, I think it's a great idea to wear masks because it's a spit catcher, like you said. So when, when people say it's not helpful, um, they mean a virus particle can travel through it. So you could, you could, a virus particle is small enough to fit through the holes of a mask. Um, so nobody, nobody's arguing that that's not true. Um, but you can still wear the mask to protect yourself from the, to actually, to, to catch your own spit. And what that does is it doesn't so much protect you from breathing in a virus particle. It protects the people around you from you spraying water droplets from your mouth and nose that are carrying the virus. 
It's just a disgusting image, Corey, it, because now every time someone coughs, I have this visual in my head of like if it, there was a black light on and I was just watching this stuff. It's a very eerie thing when you walk through Walmart and you have that visual in your mind, just of this just nastiness floating everywhere. Yeah. Is that around us all the time? Yes. Oh, gross. That is terrible. Honestly, though, doesn't it make you like in awe of your body's immune system in general? I think it just mainly makes me disgusted (laughs) (laughs) because I hate the idea that there are germs everywhere all the time. But it is an amazing thing how the immune system works. So, okay, I want to get on an immune system question. So with the the mask, so you're saying with the mask, it's a good deal to to wear them. Okay, I want to apply this really quick. When churches gather, like talk about where this is useful. Because even I was talking to a really good pastor friend, a guy I love and respect this week. And he said, so what we're doing is people are coming up, they get out of their car, they put the mask on as they walk in. Then once they get in the auditorium, they're six feet apart so they can take it off. And I thought, I don't know if you're applying that quite right. So where do you want to wear the mask? Okay, so you talked about um, the re- in the reopening plan, like the place where we talk to each other is outside. Um, so if we can stand further away from each other, six feet apart, and we can be outside and we can have short conversations, you talked about timing, we can decrease the risk of spread to one another. Um, so um, the the thing that concerns me about your friend is in the... Um, church setting, if they're like singing, I mean, singing, talking, crying, <laughs> those are things that, you know, force your air out of your mouth more. And so spread viral particles and spread them further. Um, so a spit catcher for singing would be a good idea. I don't okay. know. Some churches are gathering and not singing. So I don't know if that's the, their case and their distancing. No, <laughs> I think they went the other way. They were like, I don't like trying to sing with the mask on, so I'll take it off. And I think the point is no one's wearing the mask because you thought, woke up one day and thought, you know what I want to do? I want to cover the front of my face with cloth. You know, like It's not like, a, oh, I like this. It's We're asking the question when we gather, where does this most helpfully reduce our risk of spreading it to a lot of people? And the conclusion as far as we can tell right now is the best time to wear it is when you sing or when you're gathered in a space together. So that's part of why we've tried to do that from the beginning. Now let's talk a little about though, the immune system. And in particular, one of the terms we're seeing thrown around is herd immunity. And so um, once again, this is the tendency to all of us become armchair epidemiologists. What is that? How does it work? And should we be wanting people to get infected quickly so we could get there? Um, that's a good question. And I mean, we could go into a lot of depth and talk about that for a long time, but I'll, I'll try to keep it shorter than that. Uh, herd immunity means enough of the people, their immune system has seen the virus before. So when they see it again, their immune system stops it with them. And they, they don't become someone who then can spread it. They become a dead end for the virus. And if you have enough of the, of the population, say 70%, um, 
or higher, um, that are dead ends for the virus, it no longer rapidly spreads through a community. Um, so uh, that's, I mean, that's, if you want to talk about vaccines and when and why they work, um, you, you get into herd immunity. Should we want, though, this is the kind of the particular one right now, as I hear people say, if we just all got it quickly, like you have COVID, let's go hang out like what I did when I had chicken pox when I was a little kid and we, we got it to the other kids and then you had it. So then it's like, oh, we can now go back to our life quickly. Do we want to do that? Like, I'm not even thinking vaccine. I'm just thinking right now, do we want this to just spread quickly so we're done with it? Yeah. Um, no, don't have COVID parties. Please don't have COVID parties. Um, uh, it's a good, it's a good thought. I think it's a good thought because I, I mean, I had it too. Maybe we should do this. Maybe I should want to go get it. Um, something that I didn't know when I thought that was that your immunity to coronavirus is not durable. So what that means is once you've had coronavirus, your immune system develops a little bit of memory for it, but it doesn't last long. So then three months later, you can get it again. Um, so herd immunity, even if we could get 70% of the people to have the virus quickly, herd immunity wouldn't last um, mm -hmm. because that's not how our immune system is responding to the, the virus when we're just exposed to it in the environment. Okay. Now, I mean, the other side to that is there is a real mortality rate too. So if you said, let's give it to 70% of the country really fast, a lot of people would die. And our medical system is not equipped to take care of the amount of illness, severe, severe illness from the virus either. So I'm doing math right now, Corey, because I'm a pastor. I'm super good at math. So 330 million people in America, if we had 70% of people get it, that would be 231 million people who'd be infected. If the mortality rate on that was as low as uh, 0.65, so not high, I'm talking low mortality rate, you're looking at 1.5 million people who would die if you went quickly to herd immunity. And so I do think that's just a math thing. That's not saying 1.5 million people are going to die. That's saying if we tomorrow instantly infected 70% of people at random in America and the mortality rate continued forward the way we've seen it, we would see a scope of death that is pretty shocking. And so I think that was one of the things that for me, you don't need a huge infectious fatality rate for it to be really, really powerfully effective to see people die. And so I do think that's something that... I needed to keep, have in mind, you know, as I looked at this. Okay, yeah. so. The other thing is, Mark, um, if we slow down infection, we wear our spit catcher masks and we slow down the spread of the virus, we have more and more time to learn what kinds of medicines can help. That's a great help. point. We have more and more time to understand the virus. So that's another that's reason. a huge plus. Great. Okay. Where do you get this information, Corey? I mean, outside of just being a doctor, but that seems to be one of the biggest problems is I don't know where to go read stuff online that's reliable and helpful. Where do you go uh, for information on this? The main place that I go is the CDC website. Um, they have 
Uh, they are a reliable, trusted source that the scientific community goes to regularly, pre-coronavirus and certainly also through coronavirus. They're, they're not perfect. Um, and some of the early modeling and some of the early mortality rates that we feared have proven to you know, change over time. Um, but I, CDC is where I regularly go. I also check regularly on the Iowa Department of Public Health website um, where you can get local um, coronavirus activity information. Uh, occasionally, I look at the World Health Organization website. Um, so I like to know what's happening in the rest of the world, too, um, and see some of their guidance. I, um, so those are, those are the main three that I use. It's interesting that each of those three are really common things. And so I think sometimes we have this idea that all our doctor friends have access to information that is completely past anything. We, you certainly can read a lot more medical data than I can. But just hearing you say you can rely on the CDC, they won't be perfect, but they're the kind of the gold standard out there. That is really helpful for people, I think. Because I think we just hear names thrown around and people are so amped up that it's like, I can't trust this anymore. And if we couldn't trust that as a source of information for doctors, we would kind of be saying we really can't trust much of anything as a source of information. It would be so cynical for the medical community that it's almost unthinkable of how we would do public health medicine at that point. So let's talk about risks. We're a church, and there are things that are higher or lower risk right now to spread the virus. So I'm going to play uh, the risk game with you. In, in the risk game, I'm going to name a human activity, and I want you to tell me whether it is a high risk or a low risk and why, briefly. Um, going to Walmart and shopping. Okay, from a virus standpoint, is it high risk? Yeah. I mean, I'm not just talking like, is someone going to hit me? I'm, uh, yeah, virally, Corey. Let, let's stick with the topic here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. shopping cart. Um, uh, so in general, pre-coronavirus, when someone comes to me and their kid is sick and they can't figure out what, how they got sick, I say to them, have you gone to Walmart? <laughs> I would say... Generally, there is risk in shopping in a store, and not picking on Walmart, but uh, touching the grocery cart and touching your face. You're, you know, the, there can be, with coronavirus, to be clear, we don't think that touching a contaminated surface and then touching your face is a huge cause of spread. But in general, viral particles um, that you come in contact with, then you touch your face, your nose, your mouth, you can become infected that way. So medium risk. Okay. Medium risk. Are there things I can do to move the medium to low? You can wear a mask. Oh, and, okay. And then when you leave the store, you can wash your hands and be careful to not touch your face while you're in the store. That is a great point. I was going to suggest bringing Lysol and just shooting it at people, but that's probably not the methodology we should use or advocate for ever. And I just did it. So let's pass that on. Indoor dining at a restaurant. Indoor dining at a restaurant. Again, uh, higher risk because of proximity to people while they're talking 
and duration of time that you're together. What if we take that indoor dining and I go outdoors to the patio? Uh, lower risk because so, the ventilation of the and the air movement is better. So outdoors is almost always better than indoors as a pattern. I go to church and I do a normal Sunday in the same distancing. So it's like church from last January. High risk, lowers. How would you classify that? Very high risk. Corey, it's a church call. Can you help me out a little bit? Does this just stick? I said high, lower. I said just like very high, maximally high. Okay, no. Okay, no, how? But you're, you're sitting close for a long period of time, more than 15 minutes. Um, and you're singing and hugging and close to each other, which are great things, but they are increased risk of spread. And then if you want to add the children's rooms on top of that, where kids are literally slobbering on toys and then the next kid puts the same one in their mouth. I mean, the church, normal church is a place where germs are passed. Well, that's great for attendance, Corey. Thanks for nothing. Uh, no, I'm, I'm great with that. So, okay, you've been out, though, to a service where we were running it with like kind of the post-COVID model. How do you feel about where we're at with risk there? I think low risk. Um, we do a good job with distancing. People are wearing their masks. So to be clear, my mask does not protect me. My mask protects the, the people around me. Um, and people are doing that, which is a great way to love each other and love our community. Um, okay. And then we do our talking outside. So let's, let's uh, kind of go on this risk pattern into a new field of study, which is as a pediatric specialist here, um, something that's a big deal, which is schools and reopening. So what are some of the thoughts that you have? Because you're both a pediatrician and a mom and a community member. I just want to throw that out there. Like, even as kids are returning to school, should they be wearing the mask? Like, what are some of the thoughts you have? Uh, it's a good question. And um, I don't know what the schools are going to do. But I do think um, that with social distancing and mask wearing um, as part of their planning, um, I am looking forward to sending my kids back into the school for their learning. I think that's where they learn best. I think it's best for them socially to be back with their friends. And um, I think the virus itself is not a high threat to the children. Um, I do hope that um, the plans um, are making a good, safe environment for teachers to teach. So. Um, with uh, distancing and cleaning and face coverings. Um, yeah. What else did you ask? Let me ask you this. Like, as you think about the school reopening there, I'm going to press into a couple areas. Are there like certain risk factors that could be present in kids where you as a parent might say, I don't know if I, that would be something I'd be sending my kid back to school. Like those, we hear comortality or comorbidity sorts of factors. Are there certain things that put even a child at a little higher risk that you guys have seen? Yes. So um, we, we know for sure that um, certain age 
groups are having um, a harder time with the coronavirus. Um, so age is a risk factor, um, but then some underlying medical conditions. That's what you're talking about with comorbidity. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the truth is most of those would be like underlying heart disease or lung disease that's undergoing like um, pretty constant medical attention, uh, kidney disease, um, immunosuppression. Um, but that does not include like your, your, uh, regular asthma allergy type symptoms. Um, so yes, if you had a child with special healthcare needs, you, you may wisely uh, want to talk to your child's doctor about if they are higher risk. Um, but the, the majority of children don't have the kinds of illnesses that would require them to stay home. No, that's really helpful. It's, it's helpful too. We've talked some about this. I know we have Corey about like the difficulty of the start and stop. I think one of the, the, the things we don't quite understand yet about opening schools are at what point of a threshold does a classroom or a school have to go into an online mode or out of it? And I think those are going to be the sort of things that parents, I could see beyond the health concern, but to the academic sustainability concern, where I think parents are going to have honest questions. And I just want to say, for anybody who's out there working at a school district, thanks for all the work you're doing. Holy moly. I've been on a couple of those calls going, they are working so hard. It just makes you admire the work that they do even more. And so we're really thankful uh, for that. I know they're trying to make great decisions. Everybody's trying to. Thanks again to Dr. Corey Patton for joining us this week on the Equip Podcast. There's a ton of wisdom, a ton of love for Cornerstone that she shared with us today. For all of you, I'm praying again that God will continue to equip you to live a faithful life wherever he's called you. Serve Jesus, love your family, love your community, and have an awesome day.